Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Uh, right off the bat, I have to introduce my colleague... My uh, my friend, Kenny Schmidt. Welcome back to the show. Hi-ho. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, so Kenny, you've been here with us before, and um, you were talking early days in your Linux exploration journey since that time. You've joined AltaSpeed Technology as a full-time support specialist and uh, have recently had the opportunity to assist in one of our larger deployments. And so this week, Kenny comes on, and we are going to share the story of how we turned a uh, a, a 3 office organization that was working across the state of Wisconsin into an office in the box powered at the heart by Linux, open source software, PFSense, all the good stuff that you want to hear. Um, and so we're going to share that story a little bit later in the hour. But uh, throughout the throughout the, the rest of the episode, you're going to join, give your commentary and hang out with us. So we appreciate having you. Again, open phones, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Dot com. So I want to start this week by talking about our pick of the week. It is the GLINet GLMT300NV2. I know they just they need a better model number for that. But seriously, though, it's a $20 router off of Amazon.com. The thing that makes this device special is it runs a particular set of firmware that allows it to not only function as your basic travel router, but contains an open VPN client. Now, this is very exciting to me because what it has allowed me to do is take this device with me everywhere I go. If I'm in a hotel traveling, in my RV traveling, um, or or any other public location to include other clients, and I have a small little device just about the size of a of a of a deck of playing cards. Actually, smaller than that, about half the size of a deck of playing cards, and it has a wired port, and I'm able to connect that. Um, to whatever switch or device that I'm using, as well as connect the Wi-Fi adapter up to a an established network. And then what it allows me to do is I can either plug in a wired connection to an internet or Wi-Fi connection to the internet, and it will automatically call an open VPN profile, reconnect to that, establish that VPN, and then present that to me uh, as a network. And what this has allowed me to do is instead of bringing along, if I have a team of five people, instead of having to bring along five laptops and everybody remoting back into the office, we simply have a small little device and it automatically calls back into the office and then delivers that office environment dynamically to wherever we are. And for $20, this is also, we've been finding more and more solutions for these small, very lightweight routers. Now, they're not going to power your enterprise. They're not going to power your small office. I probably wouldn't even recommend putting one in your home. But if you're looking for... uh, basic internet, grandma's internet, mom's internet, those kinds of things, um, and you just need it to work and you just need a small router that's going to have um, some a, a more open platform and designed around using the kind of software that you want to use or if you want to flash alternative images, those kinds of things, um, this seems to be a really great brand to buy in. And Kenny, actually, I'll bring you in and talk to you about this a little bit. We actually uh, are deploying one of these for a client. Client owns a 
what would you say rental business i guess yeah yep it's uh, they have basically a fourplex they have four different apartments in one building so they want to provide internet to their tenants they just want to provide internet because let's face it in 2020 i mean internet's a lot like hot water you know 10 years ago if you moved into 20 years ago you moved into an apartment um, you expect them to have hot water for sure i think in 2020 these days people move into a place and the first thing they think about is internet in fact, one of the other guys, one of the other guys on our team, Simon Quigley, who's not here with us today, but was an integral part of the project we're going to talk about later in the hour. Um, he just moved. And the first thing, before he even moved his furniture, he sent us pictures of his uptime. He's like, hey, look at this. Look at the upload download speed I have. This is the first thing people check. It's 2020. Um, and so as part of that client deployment, one of the things that we were looking for is where can we find a router that's inexpensive enough that we can just plug in and leave it? But at the same time, isn't going to do any of the any of the fancy stuff that the one hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollar all inclusive router switch modem combo things that you buy at your local big box store. We just want something that basically does NAT. Plug it into the internet, spit out IP addresses on the other side. Of course, we're pairing that with a Unify UAP AC Pro, and so the Wi-Fi is going to be stellar in this fourplex. Yeah, and comparatively, the original plan was they wanted to go with like a Google Home. Uh, extender kit or whatever and i said hey we can uh we can get you a unify ap pro and you'll get twice the coverage and much more reliable internet uh with and this little tiny uh router basically it, it allows us to do that it makes it so that way you can have enterprise grade access points on this cheap little setup yeah yeah and it's it's really cool so it is the gli net gl.inet the model number is glmt300n-v2 we'll have a link for you in the show notes podcast.asknoahshow.com in the news this week it turns out smart door locks weren't as smart as we once thought they dirt they were this comes to us from tech dirt a new study by consumer reports studied 24 independent popular smart doorbell brands and found that substantial security problems exist with at least five of the models now many of these flaws exposed user account information wi-fi network information or in some cases even user passwords now consumer reports um being a reputable organization of course avoids getting too specific into which uh, models and 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 which devices had specific flaws but they give some general ideas quote since the manufacturers have yet to fix all but one of the 11 vulnerabilities we discovered we can't fully describe the issues and so we want to avoid supplementing information to to potential hackers however we can tell you which models are affected and some of the risks facing consumers and how the manufacturers responded to our findings the report also found that most models of smart doorbells collect a lot more data than is actually needed to function now here's the thing if you've listened to this show for more than 10 minutes you've probably were already aware of that because we've talked extensively about amazon rings relationship with law enforcement and the portal that they've set up allowing law enforcement to access previously recorded uh, previously uh, recorded footage on your ring camera without the knowledge of the owner but beyond that uh, barely a quarter of the brands could be bothered to implement two-factor authentication, which is considered a basic security practice today in 2020 from protecting your account from being compromised. Um, their tests also revealed that most video doorbells lack two-factor fa- two authentication. Um, and and the other, uh, let's see here if I can get this pulled up, lacks two-factor video authentication. And uh, then they explain what two-factor authentication is, which I think we all know the only ones that had it were Arlo, August, Google Nest, Ring, and Simply Safe. 
And so I would uh, I would suggest if uh, if you're in the market for a smart doorbell to do a little bit of research and understand what you're buying. By the way, that doesn't go for just doorbells. That goes for in any technology device that you're going to attach to your network. Um, I think it's it's very easy for us to put a server up and say, well, we have to we have to secure this. We have to lock this thing down and you add a new client or a new desktop. And, well, we got to secure this. We got to lock this down. But then we go to add a doorbell or we go to add a computer. We go to add a camera. We go to add some other device. Um, We don't really think about security all the time. And I've recently started to as I've as I've as I've gotten more paranoid, I guess, as as it were. I've started to set up managed mirror ports on these devices and start to look at how often does my NVIDIA Shield call back to NVIDIA and Google, and why is it doing that? Um, I don't necessarily need those devices spying on me, but the more important thing, um, or the reason that I think that the doorbells are, are worse to a certain extent is because they contain video and oftentimes audio, and so my very actions of coming or leaving my own home now become... Uh, now become data points and property of the company that manufactures the doorbell or the security camera. And so I would, inv- I would advise you to do some research and, and be bothered to find a company that properly secures their gear. Um, many of these manufacturers, particularly the ones that are made in China, they put out a model, they don't bother to update the firmware, then they come out with a new model and they simply just abandon the old one. Um, and this is noticed anytime you have a cloud platform that you can no longer access anymore, but there could be security vulnerabilities that exist even with ones where the, the cloud platform is being kept up to date. It doesn't necessarily mean the firmware on the device itself is up to date. The article concludes by saying, um, honestly, a deadbolt, a traditional doorbell, even a dog, is consistently the smarter option than a lot of these smart doorbells. So if you're going to purchase one, particularly one that acts, grants access inside of the house, highly recommend you to do some research. Some things I look for anytime I'm purchasing a device and I'm looking for security, I like to know that there's no internet connection required. Anytime there's an internet connection, it means there's a server on the other end that requires that is required for that device to function. And if it's getting installed in or on my house, I don't want to be... I don't want to be a slave to some other service. Uh, no central sign-up, no place for your creds to be compromised. If you, if there is a central process, if there is some sort of central server, if there's a way to turn it off, do that. If you are using some sort of brokerage service and that service is compromised, your username and password could be compromised. And if you can't turn that off, if you need the remote functionality or you need some of the, uh, the things that are offered by that central service, then at least do yourself the courtesy of choosing a strong password that is not used anywhere else and is stored in a secure password uh, environment like Bitwarden or KeePassX. Um, the ability to choose when and how to update. Oftentimes what you'll find is that a manufacturer will push an update that has some features that you may not want. Um, Ubiquity did this with their, uh, with one of their latest releases of their Unify Control software, wherein by they were collecting information from the internal networks um, that were running on Unify hardware. And so in that particular case, we chose not to run that update until Unify corrected the issue. You want the opportunity to do that. If your device is set to always grab the latest update or always stay up to date, it removes you from that decision-making process. But that shouldn't 
override your desire and your habit of regularly updating the device, which brings me to my next point, and that is that any device you choose should have regular updates from the manufacturer. It should also support two-factor, as both the article and I would tell you. Two-factor is, again, something you have, something you know. The most simple form that we can describe is a debit card. You know the PIN, you have the card. This enables you to have better security, and of course, this is in the form of email, SMS, text message, uh, Google Authy, YubiKey. All of them do the same thing. They provide an additional form of security. And this is something you're going to want to look for anytime you're uh, purchasing something that is going to go on your house um, and and have sensitive information about you. And finally, I always look for a device that has some sort of logging. I want to be able to have some way to look back and say who accessed the house when, who came up to the house, what is this device doing? I would like to see some sort of logging functionality. Uh, bonus if they follow open standards and can be tied to other systems. This is a big thing for me, as well as having no central service or cloud service uh, if it offers uh, remote access. Um, one of the solutions that we have used uh, with great success in the past is the Axis door phone system. Uh, the Axis is a is primarily a camera manufacturer, but they make a particular camera that includes a microphone speaker combo specifically for the purpose of intercom. Now, this is a SIP device and can be tied to your SIP system, so it can be programmed to dial a specific extension. When a person approaches the door, you can use the built-in motion tracking to automatically trigger a call, those kinds of things. Uh, on the back end, we use Synology's disk uh, surveillance station, which I have found to be one of the best NVRs uh, with open standards out there. There are a couple of other ones. Uh, some of them run on Windows. The ones that run on Linux, um, the UI leaves something to be desired. The nice thing about Surveillance Station is that you can it runs on pretty much any Synology device out there. The Synology itself is running Linux, and then the package manager for Surveillance, surveillance Station, excuse me, downloads, installs, and runs just as a web UI. Uh, it's so good that the, the customers that we've installed it for have no concept that there is this entire NAS that exists outside of surveillance system. Surveillance system really could be its own thing. Um, and then lastly but not least, uh, it Access does have a native tie to Home Assistant. And so if you're already running Home Assistant and using that to control your property, then... then um, Access is definitely a way to go. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at AskNoahShow.com. Joel joins us from Georgia. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's it going, Noah? I'm doing great. How are you? Hanging in there. Um, so uh, I shared with you an article uh, over the weekend that I saw that, that, had a, uh, that I had an interest in, probably wanted to discuss with you. It was with regards to uh, BlackBerry coming back in full force, and actually the the actual uh, acquisition onward acquisition company onward mobility made emphasis to the point of trying to uh, bring production of production of the BlackBerry to the United States. This then goes to my question: um, What are you thought? Uh, what are your thoughts on trying to reduce our dependence on China for electronics? It's and a lot of politicians make it a lot make it seem like it's an easy transition when it's not when a lot of companies seem to have their seem to have like a bare knuckle uh, grasp of cheap production for the sake of making a profit although thankfully some companies such as Apple are making progress yeah that's a fantastic question um, I, I guess I would answer that by this how much are you willing to spend on a phone um, because, you know, the reality is it sounds like a great idea when we just say it off the bat. Hey, let's bring all the production over to the United States. And indeed, I drive an American-made car because, I don't know, I'm just that guy that I'll push an American-made car up sideways up a hill if I have to. But I'm going to drive something that's built in America. Um, that's just the way I am. 
all my shirts that I wear for Alta Speed Technologies are made in America. So I'm I'm very much on board with the uh, with the concept of bringing production here to the United States. However, um, there's a number of barriers that are that are in the way. First and foremost, a lot of the actual production of the small components aren't even possible in this country right now. We don't even have the facilities to make the individual components to to build something like a smartphone, much less uh, the actual factories to build the smartphone. Then the other problem that we have to get over is, frankly, Americans are lazy. Uh, if they, you know, the, the, these factories that pump out phones, um, I was reading an interesting book about um, about Ross Albrecht, and and part of the one of the chapters was about his laptop, and it was a Samsung laptop. And the chapter went into great detail describing how Samsung laptops are made at Samsung uh, over in Korea. And essentially, they just they pump these things out one after the other, 24-7, 365. There's always somebody working at that factory uh, pumping the next laptop out. And so if we can assume that the same is pro- probably true, if not even more true for mobile devices, if we're going to have that kind of workload here in the United States, we have to have people that are willing to do that kind of work. And I don't know that we do. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe even the training as well. And uh, I mean, maybe this could bring a gap for the middle for middle America that seems to have left out, like of the flyover area, if you if you know what I mean. That sort of uh, demographic that seems sort of left out of the process and or abandoned um, from from their perspective. Um, although I could also see there's a point to probably relying on our allies, such as Korea that you mentioned earlier. Maybe more production in India and also. Um, Having more, uh, having more, rec- uh, more, uh, be Taiwan, maybe making Taiwan more of a closer partner, possibly. I'm sorry if I'm going too close to. No, no. That, I, I think that. I, no, I, I think I, I think you're onto something. I, in fact, I, I, you know, being of Indian heritage, I am happy to see that India's economy has really done well. Um, from the standpoint of tech, I mean, they have some really smart people in there. And because the Internet doesn't really understand barriers, they're able to uh, participate in that electronic market. I'm happy about that. Um, I, I So I guess if I were sitting in a room with BlackBerry executives, assuming that people are willing to pay two or three thousand dollars for a phone, which is, I think, uh, what back of the envelope math is telling me is it would cost if you tried to bring what we're currently producing in China over here based on the little I understand about manufacturing. Um, assuming we started from that point, my, my next advice to, to a company like BlackBerry or Onward Mobility is going to be, hey, why don't you focus from a security perspective? And because here's the thing, the number one bad rap that, that Android devices get is security. 100% of the time, nobody else really has an argument to be made. In fact, the technology that comes out in iOS devices that is hailed as, 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 as like the new tech god um, is stuff that's been in Android for 10, 15 years sometimes. So it's not that it's not that these not that these companies, uh, you know, aren't on the bleeding edge. The problem is that because there's no standardization to push out updates and security fixes when they come available on Android and because Google does, frankly, a horrendous job at keeping all of their ODMs in line, bringing Android up to date. And then because of that, ODMs try to make the cheapest possible product to to be able to slap a sticker on it that says it runs Android. Um, what you end up with is, quite frankly, a mess. So if there was a company that wanted to take on Apple like head-to-head and said, hey, we are going to ma- manufacture a, 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 a cell phone that's going to run Android, but it's going to stay up to date. It's going to have the latest version of Android. We're going to make sure to work closely with Google. We're going to focus in on security and stability and all of those kinds of things. I think that company has a reasonable chance of succeeding. 
but the big question that's going to be left in the room is how are you setting yourself apart from the pixel, which is what Google has done. Well, also, I mean, there's some ODMs that are as consistent as the Pixel, such as Nokia and the Android One program, mm. which they're, like, from my experience, their uh, update cadence is consistent. I just got a recent update, like, just now for the latest security patch on my Nokia, Nokia smartphone, and, it, and, it's, um, and their update cadence and their update schedule is, uh, is very strong uh, when it comes to... Uh, Android, but uh, that notwithstanding, um, with uh, with regards to, I mean, getting more electronics uh, manufactured, I mean, China is a geopolitical uh, cesspool at this moment with all the stuff that's been going on with the, uh, with the, with the, uh, with all the stuff going on with the Uyghurs and also a lot of other stuff that I that I can't bring up at this moment, but the atrocities mm-hmm. that are happening, sure. And also there's censorship practices as well. And it, I mean, I'm so, I'm 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 not necessarily a populist in that aspect, but maybe it's something we need to possibly look at. Yeah, I I I I agree with you to an extent. I went to Android one and just looked at what's available. But like I say, I mean, this, if this doesn't exemplify my point of of what's wrong with Android, I don't know what does. There are five phones listed in here. One of which is well, one of which is the phone made by Google themselves, uh, and the rest of them are either Samsung, Sony, or uh, one Samsung phone, Sony, or the vast majority of them are Nokia, um, and so. Every other phone, right? Every other phone is is subject to this problem. And I I think you've got I think if I'm BlackBerry, I'm looking at that landscape and saying how do I address that first before I look any further. I do have to say just on a side note, man. This have you looked at this Motorola Razor, the flip phone? I I've I've seen some stuff about, I've seen some stories about it. Yes, and the possible successor to it. Man, this is a cool-looking phone, like a foldable Android. Uh, yeah, this is pretty neat. And then it's got a screen on the front, too. I have to look into that a little more. In any event, it's a great discussion, and I appreciate the call. Hey, really do appreciate it, Noah. Hang in there. Thanks, man. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Cockpit 226 and Cockpit Podman version 22 have been released. Um, not a big update, but a couple of notable uh, changes. Better support for no-auto Lux devices. So Cockpit has better respect for the Lux no-auto option for encrypted file systems. Previously, if you installed Cockpit, it would force an encrypted file system to mount at the next boot. Um, That was simply mounted within Cockpit. Now, the encrypted file systems set with no-auto will remain unmounted during boot. And then support for pod group deletion, the the Cockpit Podman plugin gained the ability to delete pod groups. Now, I know bef- I, I know we're going to probably get to this in a couple of minutes and probably dig into this at full force, but Kenny, I just have to say, if somebody out there has not used Cockpit before, what would you tell them? It's fantastic. Unbelievable, right? It, it is incredible. It It's managing your server like in any scenario. Like, oh, I need to manage my server on my phone. Yeah. Like, it really is that robust and simple. How many times were we sitting at a client's device, and whereas before it would be like, oh, man, it's Windows 7, I can't SSH in. Now it's just, I open that web browser, I point it to the thing, I log in, I do the thing, and then I get back out. So much easier. Yeah. It's amazing. And it it is, Vert Manager, there's still some stuff missing. Like, Vert Manager, there's just some stuff you have to do in Vert Manager. But 
especially in CentOS 8 with the new updates that they've put into CentOS or uh, to Cockpit, Cockpit, has been incredible. It, yeah. it really does make working on your server feel just flawless. Yeah, it, start, it's, it starts to almost make managing a local service a lot like managing like a VPS on the cloud because everything is in a web UI and it's just easy to do. So really happy to see the latest, uh, to, to see uh, a continued update. And what's the other thing that's great about the Cockpit guys, they always... They're publishing um, all of the updates on cockpit-project.org slash blog. So if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with Cockpit, make sure to check that out. Hey, MPTCP, this is multi-path TCP protocol. And so the idea is simple. Um, And there have been other variations on this theme to try to achieve the same thing for a long time. But this is the first time we're actually integrating it into the transport layer. So I use a device anytime I do a show remotely, and it's uh, made by a company called Tyline. And the, the reason that we use that device is it, be, it provides an absolute rock-solid connection back here to the studio. And the way that it does that is it's using RTP packets. It's an, they're all open protocols, but um, it's using RTP, and it sends an RTP stream back to the studio. But, and here's where the magic comes in. There are actually four RTP streams, and those four RTP streams can be sent over any number of four different WAN connection sources. So we've got two wired connection sources. We have Wi-Fi and we have LTE. And so if all of them were connected, it will send one RTP stream across each one of those sources. And uh, if only a few of them are connected, then I'll split it up as best it can. But the idea is that if any one source, if any one path back to the studio fails, because those RTP packets are identical in all four streams, as long as any one of the streams make it back to the studio, you, the audience, have no idea that one of my, my connections is dropped. And so it's fundamentally what makes it possible to do shows from the road, because I can connect to Wi-Fi, I can connect to cellular, I can connect to a hardware connection or have dual redundancy and never have to worry about being knocked offline. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that with servers um, and not bonding, but like if if like it actually we could achieve the exact same thing the, the way that this is working with Thailand? Well, multipath TCP allows you to do very much uh, a similar thing. Multipath TCP is um, uh, where you have multiple TCP paths to the same ultimate destination. This is particularly useful when uh, talking about wireless networks or when you're combining wireless networks with mobile networks or LTE. Uh, typically, you have e- you have you're connected to Wi-Fi, you're connected to LTE, and anybody who has had a phone and done anything over the internet has probably experienced this. Particularly if you've used any sort of VoIP or live video application, right? You're on Wi-Fi, you're having a phone call, having a video call, and you get in your car and you go to drive away, and it's as you're pulling out of the office, home, coffee shop, whatever. That Wi-Fi connection drops, and all of a sudden you notice that your video call, audio call, whatever it is, drops. And you have to call back. Oh, sorry, dropped off Wi-Fi. Right? We've all had that happen. With MP. TCP, what would happen is the link handover is actually solved by an abstraction of the transport layer. And so there's no special mechanisms for the network link or link layer. Link layer. Um, that's all happening above the actual physical link. And so then you can implement this handoff in the endpoints without requiring any special functionality or subnetworking or other fancy routing, any of that stuff. Um, and it keeps the... And and for the most part, it keeps the end-to-end principle intact. Um, there are some problems with end-to-end encryption and, and so on and so forth because obviously um, there are two possible paths now. And so some of this is still being worked out. But multipath TCP also brings the performance benefits um, in the in, into data center environments. And so in contrast to ETH, 
uh, Ethernet channel bonding using 802.3 AD link aggregation, multipath TCP can balance a single TCP connection across multiple interfaces and reach very high throughput. Um, so there are a couple of issues from a security perspective. Again, multipath routing causes cross-path data fragmentation, and that results in firewalls and malware scanners becoming inefficient when they only see one path's traffic. In addition, um, SSL decryption is going to become efficient by the way of end-to-end encryption. Um, so it's pretty simple to set up. This Linux is actually one of the first operating systems to support MPTCP. Uh, if you want to enable this in in uh, CentOS 8.3, um, you can do that. Drop down to the command line, uh, systemctl tacw net.mptcp.enable equals one, and then systemctl net.mptcp.enable net.mptcp.enable equals one. Um, now, any application that supports MTTCP natively can open a socket um, by specifying IP proto underscore MPTCP as the protocol. Um, if it's a user space application that doesn't have any concept of MPTCP, then obviously it's not realistic to build or patch or try to hack around. And so they, the community opted for using something called eBPF. Uh, which is a program that wraps a socket system call and overrides the value of protocol. And so in non-technical lingo, what that means is it's backward compatible with regular TCP. Um, so in RHEL 8.3, this program uh, will run on CPU groups so that the system administrator can specify the applications that should run through MPTCP, while others will continue to just run through regular TCP. And um, the Red Hat does an excellent job at publishing these blog articles. Next week's, they're going to publish one talking about eBPF, the helper upstream. Um, but if you want to give that a shot, you need RHEL 8.3, and it does support MPTCP. Uh, the last thing I want to cover, and this is just briefly, I just want to touch on it. Um, Jason Evangelo, uh, with the host of the podcast Linux for Everyone, has uh, written an article that's talking about a hardware problem. This is something that actually kicked off on a, de- on a Destination Linux episode a few weeks ago. And uh, he writes, quote, I once had a conversation with an Ubuntu budgie developer who explained to me why testing an update on the official Ubuntu flavors UI was problematic. No one on the team had access to a 4K monitor, meaning it was impossible for them to reliably see how the changes would look to the owner of a high DPI monitor. Linux distributions rely almost solely on their community for testing and calling them to action via scattered methods such as Telegram, Twitter, and IRC. Smaller distributions will get minimal exposure and engagement, but even a giant like Ubuntu would find this beneficial. Canonical's Alan Pope has expressed the idea for a unified structure system that can aid developers in identifying and addressing problem areas. Now extend this to potentially tens of thousands of people with everything from legacy hardware to bleeding edge or even unrelated systems. What the DLN proposes is a web interface where users can sign up, volunteer, and test, submit hardware that they're able to test with, and then developers could submit for testing requirements for a specific target, say a VM environment or a specific component. The system makes a match, and the volunteers start with the much-appreciated task of testing. The DLN is offering to, to code the server, website-related costs, as well as orchestrate uh, various aspects of the project, but this, commu- this project is in its infancy, and right now the DLN community is putting out a call for web developers to help build the platform. So if you are one of those people and have any idea how to make what started out as a haphazard discussion into a reality, then we would love to have you do that. And there is a thread over on the DLN forums we'd invite you to check out. Uh, And lastly, Rust is getting an organization. They're starting a foundation. As the project has grown in size and adoption, 
um, essentially they've really begun to feel the pains of success. And if anybody who's been paying attention to what's going on in the world knows that COVID has put tremendous pressure under Mozilla. Mozilla has since then laid off 50% of their staff. Obviously, Mozilla was a huge contributor and leader in the in the Rust team. And so a lot of the Rust developers and, lead, and those in Rust leadership stepped up and said, no, this project is important. It needs to continue to succeed. And so they started developing on their own time and, and, uh, and maintaining the project on their own time. But while they were successful with Mozilla's assistance for quite a while, they've now reached a point where it's difficult to operate without a legal name. They need an address. They need a bank account. How does the Rust project sign a contract, for example? Um, so they can't put that off. They began investigating the idea to create an independent Rust foundation last year, and members of the Rust team um, with some prior experience in open source foundation essentially got together and said, uh, well, here's the current landscape. Here are the things that we need from a foundation. And they started looking at their options. They, uh, they, they built on some, some work that the core Rust team and Mozilla uh, had started, but they're happy to announce plans to create a Rust foundation. The Rust, core team, the Rust core team's goal is to have the first iteration of the foundation up and running by the end of the year. So a huge congratulations to Rust. Um, not a developer, don't have a lot of experience with it, but the developers that I do work for speak very highly of Rust, and I know that it's a cornerstone uh, of Mozilla. So huge congratulations to them. And, uh, and, a, and a continued thank you to the work that they're doing, even in despite of being laid off and, um, and losing what undoubtedly is a lot of funding. So it might be a good place to donate some money to if you, if you have some extra laying around. Without further ado, building a virtual office in a box. So again, with me, Kenny Schmidt, uh, one of our lead installers at AltaSpeed Technology. So I guess let's start with this. Kenny, you got into technology because you're just a geek that likes playing with stuff. And you decided that uh, back at the beginning of this year, actually really kind of end of last year, you kind of made the decision that, hey, I would like to earn a paycheck for playing with this stuff. And you really have a knack for it. So right before COVID, we are going out to clients and telling them, um, hey, you know, the war- it's 2020. You might want to consider an option for your employees to be able to work remotely. You might want to consider the option for to 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 put your infrastructure in a way that can be more easily managed. And of course, anytime you have anything that runs on Windows, one of the things you run into is that Windows is finicky, and you can get around that by using snapshots and um, and and decent file systems and decent virtualization to kind of circumvent some of the pain points in Windows. One of the clients that was very responsive was an office or of fairly large office down in Wisconsin that has actually three different office locations. And um, they had said, yes, we're interested in seeing if we can move our entire office into a box. Now, I, I guess let's, at the beginning of the year, we made the decision to move from Microtech over to PFSense. And I guess that played a big role in how we set up this office because of some of the functionality and features that were available for PFSense. Why did we make that decision? They, it, to put it simple, they just make our job too easy. It it, it literally to set up a, a VPN in the PFSense UI. There's literally a wizard. It imagine when you first set up your phone, it asks you, you know, hey, log into your account. You know, do you want to have this on? Do you want to have that off? It's just like that, but for a VPN connection, it makes it dead simple. Anyone can follow this. Super simple. That's ultimately why we decided. Hey, they have all kinds of other cool stuff as well. They had a package manager, which is cool. So there's plenty of room for expandability. There's at the end of the day, there's a ton of stuff that PFSense can do as well. And the fact that it's open source, there's all of those benefits, but 
a huge thing that we started doing at the beginning of 2020 was VPN like clients and stuff. And especially with all of the stuff with COVID and stuff and people working from home, that's been really crucial. And a lot of our clients have really loved having that VPN uh, capability. So at the end of the day, that really just made it something that we decided, Hey, this is what we got to do. It, it is what it's the best at that point. You know, the Microtech had a wizard for setting up the VPN, but it only created a PPP VPN, which of course does not offer very good uh, security. And so from an open VPN standpoint, you have the option in that wizard to generate just a client authentication. So they, so there is a public certificate. So there's, there's some security in that, but then really the authentication is being done with the username and password. But just clicking a sec, uh, uh, changing the box in the OpenVPN server allows you to do full certificate, private, public, private key pairs, and um, and really increases the security of the VPN. The other thing is, uh, you you know, you touched on the package manager, but I mean that's huge. We have the ability to install, for example, Ciprox D, which is a package that allows us to handle some older VoIP hardware that doesn't work with um with mo- the 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 way that modern VoIP works. Uh, it it basically resembles the old version. If anybody remembers the NAT helper or the SIP helper, um, that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what Ciprox D is. Uh, Sericata. Uh, intrusion detection. Again, if this is a package, an add-on for PFSense, but it is it is absolutely fantastic to have the opportunity to add uh, network intrusion detection, network pre- intrusion prevention uh, right into your firewall. And of course, because like you said, it's open source, doesn't mean that there's some you know add-on that we have to pay for or some licensing thing we have to do. We just simply use it. And because PFSense is available as an ISO, we can virtualize PFSense. Now, we don't have any of these uh, clients in deployment, but we're certainly testing the idea of, can we have one big virtual server, bridge one of the network adapters, have a WAN come in one port, LAN comes out the other port, and we just funnel the virtual machines right into that virtual switch. And your entire office literally runs on a box. Yeah. As well as, I don't know if you caught or uh, touched on this at all, but the the site to site VPN as well is just as easy as well. Oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna get to. We're, uh, uh, I guess let's start with this. Let's start with the. Let's start with that. Let's start with what we aim to do uh, down in Wisconsin. So this office comes to us, and they said to us, "We want to host our office um, anywhere. We want to be able to work from anywhere." Now, the one of the the challenges early up front was. A lot of their workload is very heavily Windows based. It's very heavily based in Microsoft Office. It's very heavily based in some some special software that they use for their industry. And um, right up the bat, we looked at if there were some other alternatives that could be used. Turned out there weren't really. And so we were kind of stuck with, okay, we're going to have nine or ten Windows workstations. What is the best way to manage this for a client so that they have access to their workstations from anywhere in the world? They can't really be hit by crypto where at least there's an easy recovery procedure if they're if they are and make it possible for us to manage this um, with less headaches, because obviously yeah. anytime you're managing a large Windows environment, there's there are a lot of problems. There's right? always a headache. Yeah. yeah. So we that's what we set out. That's what we started with. And um, the natural choices, of course, were to go purchase a Dell server. So we uh, we settled on a I believe it was a Dell R R640 R640. Uh, with 512 gigabytes of RAM, eight SSDs, um, and four 10 gigabit network ports, um, and so we we got, we got the server in and loaded it with the latest copy of CentOS 8, and uh, and started deploying VMs. Now the ride down there was not real. I mean, it's nine hours away. So one of the things we spent the week beforehand just trying to track down all the parts that we're going to need, all of the software we're going to need, all the tools we're going to need to make this thing happen. And we just loaded it into two vehicles um, and drove down. Uh, if Once we got there, though, 
I mean, we were on site for less than 24 hours and we found out that the server had a bad RAM slot, right? Yeah. So this is a funny story, right? Because at this point, we're, our, we're on a weak timetable to begin with and that's tight. And now all of a sudden we find out we have a defective server. So we're like, oh man, what are we going to do? Turns out Dell Mission Critical Support is pretty stellar. It's incredible. <laughs> you, it's more than stellar. It is the most amazing tech support you have ever seen. It's unreal. They overnighted a brand new motherboard and a tech to install it. Um, we called them Friday afternoon and said, yeah. And so they went, okay, well, UPS doesn't deliver that late. So we're hiring a, a, a logistics company. We'll ship the part to the nearest big city. And we're ha- hiring a logistics company to go pick that motherboard up. And he'll deliver to you 30 minutes before the technician we're flying out there is scheduled to install it. And we're like, well, we're not going to be here t- tomorrow. Could we push this back to Sunday? They're like, Oh yeah, sure. We can do that. <laughs> so then, yeah, they, and to be clear, out. they were ready to do all of this in the four hours. They, yeah. they gave us a four-hour timeline. Mm-hmm. Imagine your desktop dies, and there's a person at your house within four hours with the part ready to put it in. That is that is what Dell Mission Critical Support is. It's incredible. Yeah, and th- and if I remember right, of course we know because we're business people that they they tie the price of all of this stuff into the cost of the server, which I think was like 18 grand when all was said and done. But the, um, but the, the, the mission critical support, they don't actually charge extra for that. It's just, when you buy a high enough tier server, they just go, well, you're spending that much money. We're going to make sure it works. Yeah. Now I want to go knock on someone's head at Dell tech, whoever did their quality assurance thing. Like, Perhaps maybe check that before it leaves the door. Although I have to say, in Dell's defense, we did fire the, the server up before we took it down there, and we didn't have any problems there. So it's possible that it was a RAM slot on its way out. Anyway, Sunday rolls around. Dell Mission Critical Support shows up on time. Uh, guy was like a true neckbeard. I mean, no two, <laughs> no two ways about it. Comes in, and the other thing that we noticed about Dell servers are, are they modular or are they modular? Because everything came out with a blue clip. It was incredible. He... So my favorite part was when he pulled the fans out. There's probably seven or eight of them, and you just watch him go down the line, and it's like, click, 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 and then he pulls them all out. It was it was effortless when he was tearing the server apart. It's incredible to watch. He tore that thing down to the chassis in maybe five minutes. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. it was super fast. So, yeah, I so think ta- the only thing that was screwed down was the motherboard. Right. Yeah. So he takes that out. He puts a new motherboard in. Um, as one might expect, new one works just fine. We get the server up and running. We fire it up at full capacity. She's going well. So... We set up the first PFSense box, and like you said, um, some of these applications that are available in the package manager just make life easy. So, for example, when you're setting up the Road Warrior VPN, again, it's just a wizard to set it up, so that part's easy. But even the exporting of the client credentials so that the user just gets a little open VPN file. And, And I'll tell you something. I've worked with a number of different VPN protocols. On Microtech, we pretty much did everything with IPsec. And I'll tell you, the thing that I really like about IPsec is that it works with every other routing platform. So it didn't matter if the other end of the site was Ubiquity or Juniper or Cisco or PFSense. It didn't matter because IPsec talked to everything. So I liked it from that perspective. But the performance over OpenVPN just smokes IPsec. It's not even close. Um, and the other thing is IPsec is a real pain to set up because you're you're doing all of that yourself. You're generating all the certificates and blech, it just sucks. Um, with OpenVPN, they have it down to a wizard in PFSense. And then there's a package that you can add called OpenVPN Client Export Wizard, which will allow you to export the OpenVPN file. The thing that I f- have found to be so beneficial about OpenVPN, as much as I like WireGuard, 
you can send these files, email these OpenVPN files, which you actually you probably don't want to do. Um, but we, I think we use flash drives at this office. Yep. Um, but you could email them, and the user simply has to import that OpenVPN file into their OpenVPN client, and it does all of the rest of the configuration. And as far as the user knows, it just pops up, asks them for the username and password, and boom, they're on the office network. It's really incredible. Um, the information that is available through PFSense is fantastic. Going through and looking at the dashboard and having just a traffic graph to know what the WAN interface is doing and how much internet they're actually using, incredible. LAN interface, how much traffic's actually going over the, the, the interface, incredible. And then the default routing rules in PFSense are such that if you add a virtual IP address, because one, one of the things that we did for this project where we re-IP'd their offices when they when the guy who originally set it up he made one ip address scheme for one office and then used the same ip address scheme for the other two needless to say it doesn't work real well for vpns so we had to re we had to re-ip this office and we anytime we do something at alta speed we try to follow somewhat of a standard so the standard that we've been using is 10 dot location dot purpose dot host so it might be 10.1.10 .10 for you know admin general purpose network dot one and then if we added a second location, 10.2, 10.3. We were sleep deprived uh, to the <laughs> to the tune of like 24 hours when we started to forget which office was what. So we just started identifying them as the dot two office, the dot three <laughs> office. Yep. And it just made life easier, really. Yeah. Um, so we implemented a, a logical, sane IP scheme. And then, like you said, the site to site wizard is absolutely fantastic. I also want to give a plug to Lawrence Tech Tips. Lawrence Tech. Oh, incredible video on it. Yeah, yeah I mean, this guy. Through step by step. This guy, he knows PFSense inside and out. And the thing I, I really like about him is he also has some experience with Ubiquity and Microtech, which is <laughs> this is a great alternative reality for alt speed technologies because this is the stuff we use. Yeah. Um, and so his videos and tutorials are just absolutely stellar. Walks you through every single step. Um, and so the the again. Site to site, super simple brain when you enter in the right gateway. Uh, is super simple brain dead <laughs> to set up. Uh, and then the ability to run this on a variety of hardware absolutely blows me away. So you can download the ISO. You can run this inside of uh, a VM so you could virtualize it. But you can also run it on Newegg sells some hardware that you can buy, generic Chinese hardware. Or, of course, you can buy the approved NetGate devices. The only issue I have with those things, they start at $1,000. Um, but going back to the re-IP and, and, and the benefits of PFSense there, we added the original legacy network address of the router so that all the devices that were there could still talk in the 192.168 network. And uh, lo and behold, PFSense will automatically do um, routing in between those subnets. And so even though we were on the 10.1.10 network and the old network is 192.168.0 network, we were able to talk to all of those old devices with 10 IP addresses because the router simply had a single IP address on that subnet. And I just, the there are some security implications to having wide open routing like that, right? wide open firewall rules, but man, is that a nice default, especially when you're trying to troubleshoot stuff and I just, I need to start with everything working and then I'll lock things down as I go along. I, I'm just, I've been, in, I've been very impressed with the decisions that the PFSense team has made, I really think it's a great routing platform. The other thing is, I have been following things like OpenSense, which um, you know is obviously a fork of the original PFSense. 
but what I found is there are some central management systems that work with PFSense, and I think those are something that we're going to explore down the road to kind of give more of a unified feel uh, to our PFSense firewalls and the ability to do some central management. So that's what we set out to do. We got the PFSense three gateways up. That, as I recall, didn't take too terribly long. Central office was 10.1, remote office A was 10.2, remote office B was 10.2. Three, um, getting open, we got the OpenVPN server set up. We got the OpenVPN Road Warrior VPN set up. Um, the other thing, the troubleshooting tools in PFSense, the ability to flush states. And I don't know if you dealt with this as much as I did working with the ISP, but we had we had an ISP guy come, come out that, um, well, he didn't really know much about ISPs. But so he comes out and says, yeah, the stat, the, the, your, your router should be working. I'm like, well, we can't talk to the gateway, so it's not. And he's like, well, my tester works that I plugged in. I'm like, well, that's good for your tester. I still can't talk to your gateway, though. And he's like, ah. I'm like, here, watch this. And I, we could flush all of the states out of PFSense. So there was no stale ARP entry, was no stale whatever. Turned out the stale entry was on his side. And once he figured that out and reset the box, it came back up. But the ability to... To take a tech and show and say, here, let me show you all of the established states inside of the firewall, like everything on the network that it's talking to through your or trying to talk through through your modem. And let's wipe all of those out of the table and start fresh. And then I'll show you that it still doesn't work. Now, now tell me again that it's my problem and not my network and not your modem. (laughs) You know, like having that tool at your disposal is unbelievably useful. Having the ability to just drop to a shell is unbelievably useful and and this is a big knock on Microtech, and I never realized exactly how much it was handicapping us until we didn't have this limitation. The ability to reset a password. You cannot mm-hmm. reset the password on Mi- Microtech. Once you lose the password, you have to reset the thing to default. Now, our we work around it because we just download a copy of the config every time we make a change. So it's not really that much of an issue for us. But, uh, man, it, it sure is nice to be able to just drop, plug in a console cable and every one of their devices, by the way, supported from Net, NetGate uh, to include the little 1100G, the smallest one you can get for 200 bucks, supports console access. So you can get actual terminal console access to the router and reset a password, reset the web UI, those kinds of things. Um, let's get to the server. The Dell R640, 512 mi- mi- uh, gigs of RAM, eight SSDs, 10 four gigabit network ports. This I mean, thing's unreal. It's, it's like anything you've ever seen it is it's computer beyond computer we were trying to push that thing to try to make it do something bad and we were unsuccessful in our efforts um we had 1080p video streaming over rdp sessions just to try to see what like large network loads and and i think you had one going for 24 hours yeah flawless no frame drops either i mean just it looks like you're sitting at a real desktop the experience was incredible. These people came into their office the next morning and they didn't even realize that their desktops had changed because the performance was that good on this machine. This machine with nine VMs running Windows 10 and the just the power suck that Windows 10 is was getting it to about, I think, 9% was the peak that we saw for CPU utilization. So it still had 90% to go and people were having a flawless experience, and that's ten Windows uh, ten VMs running on it. So let's talk about the client side a little bit. We we got off to a start. If you've ever used the Noobs installer on the Raspberry Pi, then you've undoubtedly seen an option for ThinLinks. T H I N L N X L N I X, and ThinLinks is basically a a stock install of Debian with uh, free RDP running in underneath. And um, the promise is that you flash a Raspberry Pi with this uh, with 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 ThinLinks, and you point it to an RDP 
desktop. And Thin Links turns a Raspberry Pi into the best possible experience for using a remote desktop. It basically makes the Raspberry Pi feel like it is the virtual desktop, as if, if there was a physical representation of it. I mean, there's no menu at the top. There's no connection thing. You don't notice anything. You just turn the computer on. You boot it up because you can repurpose any other machine. You can do it on a Pi. You can also install it on an x86 yeah. box. When you power that machine up, it automatically just connects to its RDP yeah. session. And and the other amazing thing with it, too, is if that server ever loses connection, you know, there's either a network drop or whatever, um, what it'll automatically do is it'll actually just disconnect from it because it has no connection, and it'll literally just show a nice blue wallpaper. Right. So even when the machine is down, it just looks like, oh, my computer's just frozen, so Call support. contact support, and it's that simple. And, I mean, it's no joke. When you power this thing on, it's literally just a Windows 10 desktop, and you can even run it on a Raspberry Pi, a little... Uh, hundred dollar computer once you get all the accessories and stuff for it and it's windows 10 on a little tiny you know three inch box you know it's yeah. incredible they have a management <laughs> program that actually runs as well and so you can change remotely if you say i want this thin links box to point to, to to this rdp client or that one um the only issue that we ran into was with usb redirection and this is why and simon's going to get a lot of credit here even though he's not here today with us to, to to join us simon did a lot of the administrative work and so we definitely appreciated that but when we needed him to break out his developer hat he was more than happy to do so and so we said simon why doesn't this thing works and he goes huh this is debian underneath i can hack this so this man's a wizard a few hours later he comes back and he's like well i downloaded the latest version of free rdp and compiled it into this debian box and now the redirection thing worked great i'm like well that's fantastic so we reached out to thin links and said oi here's what you have to do to fix your stuff and the guy comes back and he's like well it's kind of a project i maintain and i'm really the only developer and i'm the only guy maintains it so i don't really know when i'm going to get around to that and so we hit a stumbling block, and I don't know what to do about it. And so if you, the open source community, does know, we need a FOSS solution for connecting to RDP. We just do. Yeah. It's too prolific in the IT world not to have this. Yeah, and if we had a team of people working on this ThinLink software, I mean, it's already, I mean, this guy's put in a ton of work. we got to give him a lot of credit. He's, oh, he's yeah. built an incredible system. Because it doesn't but, just do RDP. Oh, you can yeah. connect it to a bunch of different yeah. remote protocols. Yeah, it has a, a web application, so you can run it a, like a web app, like Chromium, in a, basically a, a kiosk-type mode, um, as well as uh, connecting using other remote desktop protocols, um, and just tons of different options. It also has a, a digital signage tool as well that supports up to three monitors, which is really nifty. Um, like I say, the guy has done an incredible job, but wh what it comes down to is we just need to have people like that working in a team and being right. able to edit together because one person working on a piece of software just doesn't work. I mean, there's yeah. going to be errors and you need to have people to back you up. Yeah, and the truth is the community has already done the job to fix the problems. We, he, that guy just needs to implement the changes. So anyway, huge thanks, Kenny. I'm sorry that Kenny couldn't or that uh, Simon couldn't be here, but it, that was a fun project. And obviously, as we continue to learn lessons, we'll we'll continue to share them with the community. Any takeaways that you had, though? I, I I'm gonna come off a little bit sounding stupid here, but I'm just baffled. This whole the whole <laughs> trip was incredible. I mean, there was the hardware we got to play with was incredible. First of all, and yeah. and the software to complement it was even it just brought so much joy to my face. I mean. We worked with the newest version of CentOS, CentOS 8. This was kind of our first deployment with the newest version. And all of the improvements they've done to Cockpit have been just standout yeah. incredible. It looks phenomenal. It's default now, right? Yeah, yep. And it's 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 amazing, too. Cockpit, now, when you load a CentOS 8 machine, it's already installed. All you have to do, and it actually prompts you once you boot up the machine, to enable Cockpit. 
you type in your command. I don't remember the exact command. It's something along the System lines of system ctl enable, yeah, enable cockpit cockpit. Socket. Yep. And once you have it enabled, you navigate to your IP address of your machine, then port 9090, and you have this beautiful interface for working on your server. So, I mean, like I say, the, the hardware was just incredible to play with this week or this last week here, as well as all of um, the software to complement it. It was just phenomenal work. The thing, and you know what's great about it, and, the, and I mean, you can exemplify this more than anybody else. The, what was the first thing you said when you played with Cockpit? I got to go put this on my home server. <laughs> so, and that right there, Kenny, is why I would tell anybody that says, well, you should use this proprietary alternative over this open source one. It's not as good. It doesn't do this thing. It doesn't have this feature. There's not as many users or whatever. Here's the bottom line. This enables anybody to use it. This allows anybody to experience and take advantage of world-class software and it's provided to you courtesy of the open source community. Hey, it's been hanging it's been fun hanging out with you guys. If you'd like to stay up to date on the latest, we ask you to follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show will be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. <laughs>